I'm Andrew Murata, host of the Education Leadership and Beyond podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, I, I got a question for you. Do you ever feel stressed, overwhelmed, exhausted, stuck? Or, or, or are you emotionally eating? Uh, you can't sleep. You're mindlessly scrolling the internet or watching TV. You have thoughts uh, racing through your brain all the time. You have a foggy brain even. Not sure if you're stressed? If you experience any of the things listed, there's a good chance the challenge I'm about to tell you about will help you. I have the wonderful opportunity to collaborate with Yin Jimenez of Connect Flow Grow on her new program, the 21 Day Stress Less Challenge. Over the course of 21 days, Lynn will teach you what you need to know about stress, including what it is, how to identify how stress impacts you, and how to use coping skills effectively to actually stress less. Most of us weren't explicitly taught ever what stress is, uh, nor how to reduce it, but Lynn will help all of us. Join by April 16th and enroll in the challenge that begins on April 19th and join her on live Zoom coaching calls where she will help you get grounded and answer all of your burning questions. Go to connectflowgrow.com and use my code Stephen and the number 10, so Stephen10 to save 10% and Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission. Take care. Get ready to get your stress under control. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Hannah Beach, who, along with Tamara Neufeld Strijak, wrote the awesome book for educators, Reclaiming Our Students, Why Children Are More Anxious, Aggressive, and Shut Down Than Ever, and What We Can Do About It. Lots to learn today. You're going to love this interview. Thanks for listening. And uh, oh, by the way, before you go, could you open up that uh, podcast platform you're listening to me on? That's right, that app, and uh, go in there and uh, rate and review the show. Hmm, could you? Please. <laughs> By the way, while you're there, go ahead and uh, share it and subscribe. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. Enjoy. You know, a couple of years ago, my uh, my wedding band started having problems. And I've had it for 34 years, and uh, it started breaking at, at the backside of it. And we got it fixed a couple of different times. And then eventually, not too long ago, one of those that backside just fell out and it couldn't be fixed any longer. And I'm like, this is crazy. I, you know, I shouldn't have to deal with this. And, and so anyway, then a friend told me about, uh, Boone titanium rings and, uh, which is at boonrings.com. And they have this incredible selection of titanium rings. And, and, uh, I now have a titanium ring as my wedding band. What's really cool is like it's an engraved ring that has uh, these cool car pistons on it and some stars. And, and I could have chosen from any kind of different stand, uh, styles, as well as they have all these other different types of rings, like uh, inlays that have meteorite, wood, acrylic, stone, and things like that. They also make uh, carved rings and, and a, just a, an assortment of other rings that uh, are just pretty amazing. They also make pendants and cufflinks and earrings, and as well as a couple of different types of tools. Um, I got to tell you something it's really cool because this ring's not going to break <laughs> and uh they, they'll make you happy and uh just as a note uh teaching learning leading k-12 um they've become an affiliate sponsor for us and so if you were to use our code which is capital t capital l capital l capital k the number 12 and uh, use that at checkout you get 10 percent off your ring and uh teaching learning leading k-12 gets a commission i think you're gonna love their rings i know i'd love mine <laughs> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading, K-12, a 
podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hannah Beach is an award-winning educator, author, and keynote speaker. She was recognized by the Canadian Human Rights Commission in 2017 as one of five featured changemakers in Canada. She is a co-author of Reclaiming Our Students, Why Children Are More Anxious, Aggressive, and Shut Down Than Ever, and What We Can Do About It. Her best-selling I Can Dance book series, Supporting the Emotional Health of Children Through Movement, Play, and Expression, won a 2017 Gold International Moonbeam Children's Book Award and has been adopted by multiple English and French language school boards across Canada. Hannah received the City of Ottawa's Annual Celebration of People Education Award, which recognized her expertise in developing innovative, inclusive programs and resources. Her work with children has been shared and highlighted in distinguished venues across the country, including the Senate of Canada, multiple universities, as well as national and international conferences. As the founder of celebrated experiential discovery programs at Dandelion Dance and Turnisall, Hannah has spent over 25 years developing and delivering programs for children and youth. She is a Newfeld course facilitator, delivers professional development services across the country, provides emotional health consulting to schools, and speaks at national and international conferences about the power of bringing more feeling and human connection into the classroom. Hannah is married and has three children. She lives on the west coast of Canada. Today, we're going to talk about reclaiming our students, why children are more anxious, aggressive, and shut down than ever, and what we can do about it. Hannah, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone, and thank you, Stephen, for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's awesome to have you here. And uh, let's start first about your best-selling series, I Can Dance, which is about supporting the emotional health of children through movement, play, and expression. Could you share a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So I created these resources because when I saw how children naturally play when they're not in the classroom, they're usually using their body. They're very um, immersed in in, in um, <clears throat> experiences. Excuse me. And our bodies are where we also release agitation, frustration. You'll see this, for example, even if um, you're nervous, you might tap your pen or tap your foot. And our bodies are this a very natural place where this happens. And dance, interestingly, when it's process-based, is such a beautiful form of play for children. And the wonderful thing about movement is that it can help kids fall into a flow state. And so I wanted to create resources that really helped kids um, kids of all of all types that's why the books have very inclusive imagery you see kids in wheelchairs kids with down syndrome kids with autism um able-bodied kids kids in jeans they don't look like quote unquote dancers it's just what a real classroom looks like because i wanted to break stereotypes about dance being for you know able-bodied thin little girls which is what a, a lot of stereotypes hold it should just be about um just creating a space where kids can release a lot of what's inside them and fall into this um, place where they can release frustration and explore their world in ways that are often really natural to them. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, you know, and I, and I, I'm guessing that a lot of that uh, has to do with uh, also just trying to give kids time to, to, to dance, to do, to move. Yeah. <laughs> to move their bodies. Exactly. And, and it's interesting because the books all have CDs with my voiceover facilitation or or the teachers can do it on their own. But we picked music that has no beats. It just holds a container. So for example, the one where the kids dance spaghetti, the music sounds all like woo, like noodly, or um, red might sound like really lots of drums. And so it sort of like holds a play container for the kids to um, do it their own way, which is the way kids engage in play. And so there's no steps, there's no memorizing. It's sort of like holding spaces 
where children can fall into the learning in ways that work best for them. And um, it's been really exciting to see such a strong response. Um, it's in classrooms now. It's been adopted by school boards all over. It's, it's exciting to watch it and to see kids having fun um, and learning and playing that way. Love it. Thank you. And thanks so much for sharing. That's a, I think it's really cool. I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk about yeah, that. No when I saw that series that you have. The, uh, yeah. So let's shift to your book written with Tamara Neufeld Stryjack. And, uh, um, you know, once again, it's called Reclaiming Our Students, Why Children Are More Anxious, Aggressive, and Shut Down Than Ever, and What We Can Do About It. And I'm going to kind of go through some sections of it. And, um, and I'm going to start with, because I got to tell you, <laughs> once I started in, I, I actually, you know, before we started recording, I, I told you, I, I was in, in the preface. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a long time ago that, uh, you know, because as a kid and as a college student, stuff like this, if I really didn't have to read the preface, <laughs> do I need to, do I need to, you know, and anything else that's there is if there's an introduction, all that sort of stuff, do we skip over that? And, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, a professor is the one who broke me of that <laughs> because he started asking questions from those areas in his classes mm -hmm. and his tests. And you got some nice bonus if you knew that stuff. And I went, ah, well, not that I'm getting any extra credit for doing this. Or not. That's not my point. My point is there's so much information in just in the preface alone, setting up what your book is all about. And I thought that was cool. And, and so one of the things that I want to talk about, let's go to chapter one and the dream versus the reality. This is the name of the chapter. And, and you note when a classroom is filled with chaos, anxiety and behaviors, you know, we don't understand finding a way back to our dream of a thriving learning community can feel impossible. Could you put this statement in context to explain what you're talking about? Yeah. So teaching is a calling. It's not a job. We're called to become teachers. We're called. It's, it's, if we wanted a, just an easy job, we wouldn't have become teachers. It's a calling. We're called to reach kids. We're called to help kids become their best selves. It's this, this, this sense of something when we go into this field. And so many of us, arrived with this sense of excitement, this sense of like, I'm going to be there to, to be this caring leader and, and, and help be this mentor and help kids, you know, get excited. And often we find ourselves faced with so many challenging behaviors that we can't meet our calling. We don't, and, and it's troubling and confusing. And we're thinking, here we are excited and ready to go. But the kids are arriving, not looking to us as mentors or arriving and they're aggressive or shut down. They don't care, whatever. doesn't matter. doesn't matter to me. They're, they're, they're often filled with the behaviors that make it very challenging for us to, to do what we came to do, if that makes sense. And so we have this dream and some, the reality is right now, that we have an epidemic of anxiety and we have an epidemic of of increased aggression and yes we're seeing this during covid in spiked ways but this is pre-covid my book was released during covid it was written before covid and so we're faced with this dichotomy of here we are filled with this this what we want to do but we're 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 our classrooms are are often filled with you know it's making it challenging for us Oh, totally understand. And, and, you know, and before COVID, there was the challenge, as you note, because it was, you know, we, we still had teachers frustrated with the, the different behaviors or, you know, wishing that the, the classroom, because you talk about this, you know, this is the way I want the classroom to be, but it's not that way. And, 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 and now the types of pressures that it's putting on teachers, because you have to decide if this virtual world or this hybrid world or, or a little bit of face-to-face -face or whatever is going on, is this the world 
that I signed up for teaching in. And yeah, no, it's, it's a real challenge. And Tamara and I co-teach um, the Faculty of Education at the university here. And our classes quickly switched from in-person to, to online during um, COVID. And, and it, it, it's a real pivot. It's a really hard thing. And that was even hard with young adults. It's even more challenging with children because children learn in the context of relationship. So how do we bridge that across the screen? How do we become even more aware of creating that invitation? How do we make it even more human? It's an interesting thing because, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I interviewed a, a magician not too long ago who has figured out how to do a world online. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he talked about how, you know, a big part of being a magician is that you need people to go, ooh, ah, yay. <laughs> and and when you're in that online world, and so basically he connects with, you know, the audience. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of like, it reminds me of being a teacher. You know, if you're in yeah, this absolutely. online, you live for those, <laughs> those moments, yeah. even, even the stuff that you can play off of when you, you get crickets and the, and you go, Hmm, it seems yeah. like nobody knew the answer to that one or, uh, you know, and you, you can have fun with it. And, absolutely. uh, and it makes it a little more challenging with this, you know, lots of little bitty boxes. <laughs> Absolutely, because you can't see, you know, when the children are leaning in and because they're there, because they're there with you or that they've lost you, 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 you're not picking up on the cues, which it's because it's, it's, um, teaching is a, it's a relationship between the learner and, and the, and the, and, and all of you. So it's, it's a very, um, we, I think we need to have a little bit of grieving that this isn't what we what we wish for. We know this isn't ideal. This isn't this isn't what it was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. The the great news is is that you're going to give some awesome ideas. <laughs> so we're not, hopefully, yes, we're not going yes, to get we're not going to get stuck there. So, but you know, at the opening of chapter two, this is shared. Uh, we have to get our students to follow our lead. It is through attachment that they will want to follow us. It simply doesn't feel good or natural to follow those. <laughs> we don't trust or with whom we feel emotionally unsafe. Could you explain why attachment is so important? Absolutely. So often when we hear the word attachment, we think of babies or, um, you know, that sort of thing. But attachment is something that affects all of us in, in our lives from birth to death. It's, it's, it's um, a part of everything. And when we look at it in the context of teaching, see, we have to understand that attachment is nature's way of protecting children from influence outside of those who we who are their people if that makes sense and this resistance to not um feeling safe is hardwired in us it's in our biology it's instinctive and it makes sense if you think about it that we've developed this way as a species because if children naturally shy away from those they're not connected to until those that they are attached to indicate that this outsider is safe and a friend this would this would make sense because it would protect children from potential dangers. This would make sense in our biology why we would have this. And I think it's important to clarify that our attachment village is about relationship, not roles. So these days we often have the expectation that because someone has the role of teacher, this automatically means respect and cooperation from the child. But unfortunately, it doesn't work this way. Maybe if the teacher still operated within the greater community of a child, like if we were attached to smaller villages, how it used to be, that may be different. But that isn't the way it is right now. And so we're also, we're living in an era of disconnection. So attachment now takes conscious invitation. It takes work that we may not have had to have 100 years ago in the same way. We have children who are very... Um, 
disconnected. We have, so we're, not, we're needing to really activate that attachment by consciously inviting children to relationship. Because it's, I think it's really important to note that it's not, it's, the, it's not what we're doing, it's the child's experience of being cared for is, that matters. It's the child's experience. Do they feel like they matter to us? Do they feel seen? Do they feel invited? And that attachment gives us the, the means to move forward. And it's in our biology. It, it, it's awesome. I, it, it, you know, the, this section of the, the book just really spoke to me. And by the way, when I was talking earlier, this is what I mean. I, I could have spent everything between the preface and uh, these first couple chapters and then gone, oh, well, okay, hour three. Um, <laughs> um, and it, it's a good thing because this, is, this, this thought about attachment is powerful. I mean, I've worked with some adults who just don't get it. They, they, yeah. And, and the kids know they don't get it because yeah. they're like, you know, yeah, I'd get me out of here. <laughs> exactly. Because we want to be with, we're all like that. It's human. We get it. When we think of it as, as adults, we want to be with people who want to be with us. We want to feel seen. It's our, it's the most human need we have. And when we feel invited and, and um, like our teachers are happy to teach us and excited to see us and they notice our unique self. Oh, I love your new backpack. Or, oh, you got a haircut today. Or whatever those things are, we, see, we, we, we feel seen as an individual. We feel like we matter. And that, that is laying the foundation for um, teaching. And then as we become more and more mature, we may be able to hold on to content outside of relationships. So for example, a high school student might go, oh, I love my phys the physics. It's so interesting. My teacher, I'm not super into my teacher, but the content of the class is fantastic. Whereas a younger child can't get to the contact, co content without the context of relationships. They, so as we mature, this, might, this shifts. Of course, we always prefer to learn the context of relationship. But as we mature, we could hold those two separately. But at, when we're younger, we cannot. Or and I shouldn't just say younger, when I should say we're more immature because it's not about age because you can be older and immature. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, and it's, it just, just speaks to all kinds of uh, situations. And right now, um, to me, it's, it's one of the reasons why we really need to get um, kids back in front of adults because I think they need that person that they can really connect with that would help them feel calm in these, you know, different, this, these different times. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, what's interesting is that m my son last year, I have three children, two grown up and one still in school and he's in middle school and online. One of the things they did to counteract that is that each child has a half an hour a week, just with their teacher, just the two of them. Neat. And, He'd never had that before. And so although the relationship building wasn't the same as being in the classroom, because there's not the face-to-face -face thing, there was a different, she, his teacher would email and say, okay, you go get yourself a hot chocolate. I'm getting a tea. It's our half an hour chat time. And once a week he had this grounding experience and he, they actually got to know each other in a way that was quite different. And the teachers also sent home cards in the mail. And so, she sent a picture of herself for them to keep all the teachers sent pictures. So there's different ways of building relationship when we can't do it in person. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I love those ideas you're talking about. That's good stuff there. That's uh, it's very cool. That talk about making them feel special. Cause it's like, Hey, right. I, get, yeah. I like that. 
So let's let's take a minute to discuss something. I I couldn't move on without talking about this because okay. there's several real neat things in this in this chapter, and one of them is this. Let's take a minute to discuss the role that spontaneous play has played in child development in the past, and why not having it is a little problematic. Okay, I'd say it's massively problematic. <laughs> <laughs> so, if our culture is not taking care of us in the ways that it used to. This isn't about an individual family. This isn't about placing blame on anyone. But if you look at our epidemic of, of anxiety, increased anxiety and emotional um, health problems, mental health problems um, and aggression, we can see that our culture has shifted. Children used to have time for spontaneous free play. And that people may be like, yeah, whatever, who cares? Like, so they played. This is absolutely huge because play is not an extra in children's lives. Play is where children digest their internal world. It's where they um, release aggression. It's where they get to be the bad guy. It's where they get to do all the things that they, which help them be more civilized in real life is where they get to practice frustration and, it's interesting when, when you remove play, we are going to see dire consequences on children's behavior. And um, what we've done is we have replaced play with entertainment and they're not the same thing. Entertainment is like an in-breath and play is an out-breath. And we have children who are breathing in and in and in and in and they are not coping and so if we look at it more closely what's happened is that most children have had all their void moments removed from their life void movement moments are all these empty times of nothingness the times where you sit in a car, you just look out the window and count telephone poles the times where you're sitting at the bus stop just and your feelings arise and you just think things and imagine the times where you just get bored at home doing nothing. And we need those boredom times in order for play to take root because that's boredom is the fertile grounds for play to take root and children have lost, lost their times of boredom. And it's not like there's anything wrong with entertainment. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's about the amount but if you add up how many scheduled activities, because we're living in a much more competitive culture, if you add up that and the fact that most children have devices that travel with them, they're not just attached to the wall anymore, but they're with them all the time, often even till they fall asleep in the last moments of the day. Children have lost their, their place that nature gave them to emotionally digest their world and they're not coping. It's really, it really is sad because the amount of time that, uh, you know, it, and I definitely had far from some perfect experiences in my childhood, but just that ability to be able to, yeah. to just figure out something to do because in my case, uh, my grandfather who should have been watching me would fall asleep because he worked nights and he was a World War II tanker. So he, he sleep through anything. You make as much noise as you want and that's they're not waking up. Mm. And, and, uh, so, you know, I end up in trees <laughs> playing in and around the house, uh, yeah. neighbor's house over there doing different things. And, uh, and just that, that little bit of time, you know, just uh, it's interesting because you don't see that much because either 
either all their time is focused on some sort of entertainment or it's been scheduled for them. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so this was nature's way of taking care. And it's interesting when you study play because play, people have this idea that play is always fun. Play is not, in the definition of play, play fun doesn't fall under the category. If you look at the psychological definition of play, play is engaging. And there's a very big difference between fun and engagement. It can be fun. Lots of play is fun. But play isn't always fun. It doesn't have to have fun in it to define it. And if you think of that, if you even think of it, I, I'll think of my, my son, for example. He'll, when he was younger, he would play Lego. Uh, he loved Lego. And sometimes he would have tears pouring down his cheeks because he couldn't get the thing to look like he wanted it to look. Now, I'm not saying, okay, I want you to finish this truck by five o'clock. And if you don't finish it, you're in trouble, buddy. I couldn't care less, right? Obviously, right. I couldn't care less. And, and, but he's engaged. He wants to make the truck. It's, it's, it's nature's way of having him practice frustration. Now I look at my son and he just finished his master's and he's like, he could get through university when times were hard. He had practiced as a child, self-will being frustrated. That's why kids bring, build blocks and it falls down. They do it again and it falls down. Is this fun? No. Is it engaging? Yes. You remove that from a child. You have a child who can't cope with frustration because they are choosing to practice being frustrated from their own free will because for some reason it's engaging enough and when it becomes too much, they walk away from it. And we see this over and over from, the, from studying um, the universal aspects of play, like even looking at um, the number one themed books that kids would pick to read all around the world, doesn't matter what culture you go to, all different countries, if you look at the number one theme for elementary age children to read from it's about being orphaned. Oh, wow. Think of Bambi. Walt Disney got this perfectly. Bambi, Lion King, Harry Potter, Secret Garden, um, Anna Green Gables. Um, almost every book, every fairy tale, the parents have died or they're at war or something has the parents missing. Now, if you, if you think of that, well, what that, why would that make sense? Children aren't why would children want to read this? And this is why this is, helps us understand how important play and books being part of that imagination is, is that attachment is a child's greatest need. And therefore they're unconsciously driven to read about surviving. They're unconsciously driven in droves to read about, I will survive in the face of adversity. And not, they don't know this. Children aren't thinking, oh, I'm going to read uh, Harry Potter or Anna Green Gables to see how I'm going to survive. This is unconscious, nor should they be aware of it. It's, it's their, it's, it was their way of percolating survival. It's, it's how white kids all around the world also build play, um, tree houses and forts. They're playing with the idea of home and being home. There's certain universal play that happens everywhere. And when it happens everywhere, we know that this is deeply meeting a psychological need of children. <laughs> And so when we remove these things, children have lost their place for digestion. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. It would be because that's, you know, you're making me think of all kinds of different uh, ways that, um, you know, my kids played or I played before them. And yeah. you think about <clears throat> the stuff um, that uh, just is, you know, kind of anything becomes some sort of world if you let it. That's right. And, and uh, Yeah. Yeah, and if we don't understand that as teachers, that kids have lost this, we might be confused with what is happening when they're showing up in our classrooms all over the place. 
like we have to understand what's happened culturally if we're going to address it because although parents might find it hard because they might have you know two three four children or one two three you know whatever it is um teachers have like let's say 30 kids in their classrooms who are all have lost this place together yeah. yeah and that's a big that's a big thing to have to recognize because you get into that a little bit later about the and we'll talk about that some more but it's just i mean recognizing what's happening you know and what they're they're telling you but not really telling you by their behaviors and such so i i gotta um you know chapter three is awesome not that any of the others are are, are bad favorites <laughs> but i i got a i got a couple favorites here and one of them is chapter three how we lead matters the first sentence sets the stage have you ever wondered how it is that certain teachers can get their students to do anything can you talk about that Sure. Yeah. Almost every school has that teacher and we, <laughs> we can wonder what is it? They're not bribing. They're not rewarding. They're not sticking kids in the hallway and kids are just, you know, just wanting to be around this person. And, you know, we, our culture likes to celebrate these teachers. We call them master teachers. You'll see, you know, like Robin Williams in um, Dead Poet Society, or you'll see, um, uh, there's so there's so many movies are Aaron Aaron Gruel and Freedom Writers like with the true story, and it, what's going on here? And it's interesting for me because I do a lot of consulting at schools, and teachers will say, "But I'm being so nice. I'm being so nice. Why aren't the kids following me? Like I'm I'm being kind. I'm doing these things." And then other teachers say, "Well, I'm really strict, and they still aren't following me." And there's this when you step back, which a lot of teachers who have this gift don't even know what they're doing. It's often intuitive. But when we step back and we examine what's happening in these classrooms, these teachers have the mix of warmth alongside firmness. Children are unconsciously picking up a cue from this teacher that you are my leader. They're picking up their strength this firmness, this, this, um, these cues that say um, that you are my leader and, 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 and they're also feeling safe by the relationship and warmth that the teacher um, invites them into. And if a teacher only has one, not the other, let's say they're just super warm and, and kind, the children might like that teacher. They may see that teacher as a friend, but they don't see them as a leader. And so it might be like the, the fun uncle or the fun auntie who comes over and you have a great time with, but they can't get your kid to bed. They, they like them, but they don't follow them, if that makes sense. They don't feel mm -hmm. as safe with them. They don't get to rest emotionally on them because they don't see them as a leader. And if you have only the leadership, um, like that, that firmness, but not the warmth, you may have less chaos in your classroom but you don't have children who dive into their curiosity. You don't have children who put up their hand just to share. They would only put up their hand if, they're, have a, if they know they're right. You don't have children who are excited or feel free to make mistakes. It's the duality of strong leadership, of this position where the child looks up and sees them as a mentor and a caring leader, but they feel seen, invited, and um, like they matter to that teacher. And that combination will help, helps kids listen, A, because they're attached and feel safe because they're in the arms of a leader 
who they can lean on, not a friend who has chaos in the classroom. Yeah. It, it's just, it's so powerful because it is, I mean, it's just interesting. I mean, even, even in uh, some of the popular children's books, you know, th- those get portrayed. The idea that the kids are like, oh, we've got this teacher. And then, and I wish I was across the hallway in that teacher's classroom. But then in the end, they appreciate the other one because the other one <laughs> made their world, they, they just connected with the other one. And, you know, it's just funny. I, I, because, but it is so, this chapter is so just wonderfully on, on spot. And, uh, Thank and you. Uh, it's a great read. I, I read it. I actually went back and read it a couple of times. So wouldn't it be great to have a day to renew, rethink, and reboot in these unprecedented times? That's the mission of the Impact Summit. This will be a moving forward next day, implementable, every learner can be successful kind of day. Register your team today at impacteducationsummit.com. The date, June 23rd. The organizer is Susie Pepper Rollins, three-time author and national presenter. Just head to impacteducationsummit.com for details. One of the things that uh, I want to talk about here is you know, and you've kind of, you've gotten into it a little bit, but could you share a little bit about that importance of understanding how to connect and build relationships with kids? I mean, because I think that's part of sometimes what's missing is this understanding how. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting for me when, when we wrote this chapter, we were working with so many um, uh, in-service te- teachers and students who are just about to graduate from, um, and they're doing their placements and we could see it was just beautiful because we get to watch all the mistakes as 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 this is happening and so what we see is that as i spoke to earlier we're living in this culture of disconnection and that we do need to create this conscious invitation and so um i love the term that dr gordon newfeld uses which is collecting and so we say collecting which is is at the beginning of each day we collect um, we connect before we teach. We collect. So some teachers will do that um, individually as the kids are coming through the door. They'll um, say hello individually. Some teachers do this as a group before they, they start. They'll have a joke of the day or some funny little activity that they do. But we need to activate attachment before we jump into learning. And so it's really important that we, that we do this, that we, we think I need to spend five minutes or whatever it is Helping my students realize, oh, you're with me. I'm your compass point right now. We're here together. You're not outside. You're not, you know, this, this, is, this is what we are. And then once that sense of connection is there, we move into learning. And we need to do this for some students we, we call collect before you direct. Many students need this across the day, all day. And yes, it can be frustrating. But if we say, sort of, if you think of it this way, if I, if even, even in our homes, we can see this. If I, if I yell down to my son, hey, um, Thomas, it's time to set the table, and he's in the basement watching TV, my chances of him coming up to set the table aren't super high because his, his, his drawn into something else. I need to collect him first. So that means me going down the stairs, sitting beside him on the couch, entering his world for a moment, and then saying, Hey, buddy, I see this, is, this looks like a really awesome show, and I'm, I'm really sorry that you're going to have to put it on pause for right now, but it's actually time to set the table. Try to make some eye contact. I'm entering his world. My chances go up massively that my son is going to come up and set the table. And this is the same in our classrooms. When we have a child who seems to not be listening, when they're engrossed in their work, or they're with another peer, or they're 
whatever it is, it can mean crouching down to their level. It can mean entering their world for a moment and collecting them before we give them our direction. And our chances go up that they're able to follow. We have kids right now who are so internally scattered that many need these, these, these grounding moments across, across, their, across their lives and their days. And it's the same thing with the idea of what we call in the book bridging is that we have to remember that kids will work harder for us when they're connected to us. And so when we discipline a child, um, we have to be conscious of us being the ones to make the bridge back to us. So if I have a child, for example, let's say I'm working in a kindergarten class and the child's throwing blocks all over the place and I realize, yikes, I can see that. I immediately zip over there and say, nope, blocks are not for throwing. We're putting the blocks away. I pick up the blocks, I put them away. And let's say she says, I, but I'm going to stop. I promise. I promise, which is what most kids do. And I would say, I believe you. And I'm so happy that you can show me that the next time. But right now the blocks are away. We're moving on. So let's say that happens. If I just left it at that, I left our relationship in a moment of disruption. So I see it as my job to build a bridge over that discipline so that that child still feels connected to me. Because many kids, myself included, if I look back at myself, at who I was, if my teacher had said no to me very firmly or said, gotten mad at me for some reason, I might have thought, oh, she doesn't like me anymore or she doesn't think I'm good. And which is going to cause me to withdraw. And so I make a point then later on, maybe it's two minutes later, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10 minutes, whatever it is, I always make a point after any time I discipline a child, to make some eye contact, to have a little thumbs up, or do something that indicates to the child that we're still good. Nothing is going to get in the way of our relationship. I might even, if it was, say to the child, oh, I was looking for a responsible helper to bring this envelope down to the office. Would you do that for me? And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, she still thinks I'm responsible. She still sees me as a good person. And so whenever I discipline, which we have to do, we're mentors, I make a point of also making a bridge back to the relationship so that we're staying connected. And it's my job, not her, not the student's job to make the point of connection back, but my job as their leader to, to do that. That's so awesome. Cause you know, it, it makes you think about it on so different many levels. I, I recently had a conversation with someone who um, would have been, he, he was a student at a school where I was, just the year after I left. All right. Okay. So, and so I was the, dis, I was an assistant principal who was a disciplinarian at that school. I was hired to be, you know, the bad guy. <laughs> literally, that's what the principal wanted me to do. And, and so I had these different, different roles that I played. And it was funny because um, I, I, one of the things I was telling him, cause he was asking if I, I remembered some of these, these names and I he mentioned some names and I think, I think I know that name. But one of the things I told him was, I said, you know, I ran into, I've, I've run into people over the years who were with me there and, and I may have had to, you know, for whatever reason, we had a discipline conversation <laughs> and, and I said, sometimes as adults, I think we forget that there are kids, many of them, matter of fact, most of them, because there's only a few of them that are on that planet that, you know, uh, nothing <laughs> you say nor do is going to impact me until later when I wish that I had uh, connected with you or something, but it's, yeah. But it was funny because 
I've had several people come up to me and they recognize me and they, and they, and they might say something like, uh, are you, are you Mr. Mileto? <laughs> and I go, and they'll say it like that, right? Just a little meekly. And, and I'll go, uh, yes. And so then my brain's like, okay, is this somebody that I taught? Is this somebody that I was in a, please don't be somebody I was an assistant principal for. <laughs> and was, or was it a, you know, I was their principal. And, and then, you know, the longer they talk, then your brain starts working. And, and, uh, he says, I was that student who, and you know, he started to describe something and I, it dawned on me that he's thinking that I, I'm going to hate him for the rest of his life because, because of something that he did. And, I, and, I, and it was funny because in this case, this was somebody who apologized to me for something that the more he talked, I started remembering him and I went, oh yeah, I remember you now. And I said it kind of like that and he kind of got this funny little smile because this, this man was probably... 28 going on 30 and he's still acting you know as if i'm in yes. that role and yes. and he apologized to me and i said hey look i said i said we all get better right <laughs> and you know we had a good talk but it, it made me think that you know sometimes just like what you're talking about that they think that they're they've ruined something yes. Yes. and that it's that it's they just threw away anything that they might have done they've made themselves you know, it's going to haunt them for their, you know, all eternity. Yeah. And yeah, because many children have that experience that of adults um, withdrawing their warmth when um, they don't behave well. Um, of adult of us reserving our warmth for those that do exactly as 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 we wish. And um, when children see that we're there for them, no matter what that yes, we will address things when they're wrong. We will address things when behavior's off, but our relationship is bigger than that. They have an opportunity to see and experience themselves differently. And so, and it maintains that form of connection, which, which is what we need if we're going to be able to lead them to their best selves. We have to keep connected. And so it's bridging is this incredible tool that we can use um, especially with our most challenging children, especially with them. Yeah. It, and it, it plays a major role, that's for sure. I, you know, let's talk about children and anxiety. I mean, why should an adult understand how anxiety can impact the child? And, and could you talk a little bit about some strategies for addressing behaviors that might have materialized that they, they're not real, they're noticing something's going on? Yes, well, anxiety is huge. Um, it's huge even before COVID. Um, we have it's a, a massively increased anxiety in our culture and children and adults. I think the first thing that is important to talk to children about if they're feeling anxious is that um, is to normalize it. I will say to kids right away, our bodies have an amazing alarm system that tells us when something is off. So if you're, when a child says I'm feeling anxious or whatever it is, um, I will often say to them, your body's telling you something's not quite right. And isn't it incredible that you have a system that alerts you? Because sometimes our worry about the kid's worry increases their worry, <laughs> if that makes sense. So if we seem really freaked out about their anxiety. It can be really um, alarming to them. So first of all, I'll normalize it so that they don't feel like there's something wrong for them, with them. There's something right with them that their body is telling them a message. And so our bodies are incredible. Your body is telling you that little stomach ache you're having right now or those flutters or whatever it is, people experience it differently, is saying something's not right. And the grown-ups in your life are here to help you figure out what that is. 
but your body's giving you a message. And I think that's a really helpful thing that people, that we can see that alarm when it's working properly is a good thing. It's, it's meant, we are meant to have this system. Like if you see a bear and, and you're, you're, you know, you're supposed to feel a little anxious. It's, it's, it's indicating I need to fix something and change the situation. Um, but what's harder is when we can't see a bear, when we can't see what, what the thing is that's triggering the alarm. And that's where it becomes very challenging. And so some of the things that we can do um, are creating, as we talked earlier, creating emotional safety by building relationship. I kind of look at sort of like the new three R's, which are relationship, rhythm, and release. The three R's, it's like instead of reading, writing, and arithmetic, it's relationship, rhythm, and release. Nice. And, <laughs> and so if you're looking at anxiety, it's a relationship. We feel safe when we're with our people. We, when we feel at home, we feel safe. So whenever we can help a child feel at home, because we can create that sense at school as well, it lowers alarm. But I think it's important to speak to what kind of relationship um, again here. And I, maybe I can give you a little analogy of it this way. If you think of being in a storm and you're on, in an airplane, and the pilot gets on the, the loudspeaker, and let's say there's a massive storm and it's, and it's turbulence and the plane's going up and down and up and down. And the, the pilot gets on and he says, um, um, okay, everyone, I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but uh, maybe you should get on your seatbelts now. Okay. <laughs> pilot seems really nervous. You're going to have all different um, sort of responses by the passengers, but there probably could be three main responses are going to happen. One group of the passengers are going to get really bossy. They're going to step into that leadership void. It's like children. They will never not let there be a leader. If there is not a leader, they will, be, they will step into it. So they will step into that leadership void. I'll say, okay, everybody, I know what to do. Get, everybody just needs to get on your seatbelts. Someone will step up on that passengers. Other people are going to get really aggressive. This is ridiculous. I paid for this flight. Are you kidding me? I have a pilot who doesn't even know what they're doing. I want my money back. I'm mad. And then it could be very, very mad. And the others are going to be incredibly anxious. Oh my gosh. The pilot doesn't even know what they're doing. Now, here's the thing is this is the type of relationship we have to have when we have children who are anxious. We have to be the calm pilot. We have to be the pilot that says, hey, everybody, we're experiencing some turbulence. No need to worry. You just need to follow my directions and we will be okay. Sit down, get your seatbelts on, etc." Now, does that mean the pilot's not worried? Of course not. But the pilot's telling the co-pilot, not the passengers. <laughs> and so we exude a, a sense of, I've got this. It doesn't mean we have to pretend we have all the answers. It can just mean, hey, if we follow all the health directions, we're going to be okay. Or I'm here for you. It, it, it means taking a providing stance so that children can emotionally lean on us. They can rest. And children right now, are often having to work so hard emotionally at fixing things. When we up our leadership, they get to lean on us. And so that's the type of relationship. I always think calm pilot, calm pilot. I talk to my co-pilots, not my passengers. <laughs> um, so that's the relationship. The rhythm is that kids need, when we have um, rhythm, kids can fall into a sense of, um, lowering their alarm it falls into a more uh, rest state and so when everything else is wild and crazy the more we can create a sense of ritual and rhythm 
that kids can at least, I don't know what's happening out in the world. I don't know what's happening out there, but I do know what my day is going to feel like. I do know I have a rhythm to my day and I know that that provide that will lower alarm and looking also at release. Um, um, when we have kids who are alarmed is that they need to release what's stirred up inside of them and they're not often getting it at home. Um, um, not because of bad parents, parents are awesome, um, but because of the way our culture is set up right now. Yeah. I appreciate you talking about that because I think that's something that sometimes adults forget that this audience, and I, I don't care how old the kids are from um, very young to, uh, you know, the oldest child you have in your building, they're, they're still looking for the adults to have some calm and sanity about them. And so if you're, if you don't, then they respond in like, and, um, and you're, you're so right about that, wanting to lean into your, um, you as that safety net that says, there's calm and safeness here. You know, it's, uh, yeah. and that's, that's so important in times of, uh, of worry and need and things that create the, you know, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. Well, guess what? Uh, that's not a good idea to share that with the kids. I don't know what's going on tomorrow. Or I, you know, I, while you're talking, I don't know if you heard about the, the plane that uh, lost an engine over the United States, not this last weekend, uh, lost a, it was, it was a plane flying somewhere near Denver. And, you know, it, it's fortunate nobody was killed by the different pieces and parts that hit the ground. But I was thinking about that one, you know, the pilot comes on and goes, well, ladies and gentlemen, you might look at your left-hand side and we've created some new entertainment for you. The, uh, the engine is falling apart, which would be a lot different than, oh my gosh, the engine is falling off the wing. Exactly. And it doesn't mean we have to have all the answers. It's the attitude with which we share you know, like when, we, when, when teachers didn't know what's going on under COVID, they, we could say, you know what, we're going to be following all the regulations that are uh, in front of us. And when we do, we are going to be okay. Like it's, it's the attitude with which we take a providing stance instead of um, that, that helps children to feel safe because they're regulating off of us. And so um, that stance will help lower alarm because kids feel, I have a provider, I have a care. It's like that pilot. If the pilot sounds like they know what they're doing, then we feel like, okay, someone's got us. Someone, we, it lets ch children go back to being children. It could, like, they don't have to take the stance of, of the one taking care of this emotional state. They get to go back to being children. Which is so powerful. Yeah, the third seg segment of the book is dedicated to different behaviors. And I love this. I mean, common challenges that might be exhibited and what to do. I mean, this is an awesome section. One of the things that I like in this is that under each challenge behavior is a segment titled, What is Needed in the Moment. This is so cool. I don't know where this idea came from, but not only do you talk about the behavior, but you have this, these, these different little segments. And one of them is called, What is Needed in the Moment? And... Uh, can you just talk about that for just a second? Because this is, you know, because that in the moment is what's so powerful because uh, some adults kind of forget themselves and, you know. Yeah, <laughs> all of us do, and myself included. It's just so natural in the moment because we're, we're, we are stirred up because we have to remember not only are children emotional beings, we are as well. I mean, that's part of being what a human is, right? <laughs> so, yes, so yes. We're emotional beings. <laughs> um, and so what, it was interesting when we wrote this book, it was like, we went on this journey with how are we going to help people get from what it looks like right now to their dream classrooms. And part of that is, okay, kids are showing up with these challenging behaviors, whether they're bossy or disruptive or shut down or aggressive or bullying, all these things. So we wanted to give the um, developmental science behind the emotion that lies behind these behaviors, 
But then we're practical beings as educators. That might be nice to have the theory. It's helpful to, to understand so that we have insight into what's going on when we see a behavior that's our, our window. But what are you going to do in the moment? And so we thought by planting these seeds of what you can do in the moment, it helps us have a window into, aha, so this is what's happening right now. This is what I can do if the child's disruptive or bossy in this exact second. And then the next section is what I can do all the time. Because a lot of it, some of it's more long-term, if that makes sense. Some of it's like, I can address this right now. And this is what I'm going to do at this exact second. And this is what I'm going to now, when I see this behavior, now I know this is what I'm going to need to do for a while for it to shift. And so it's having the, the duality, it's the both. What can I do in the moment in the exact second when the child's being disruptive? That's going to help me right this moment. And we wanted, I mean, we wanted that for teachers because um, our classrooms are busy. We don't have, we, we, we are practical beings and we need to be there right then. Yeah figuring it out on the spot. So we tried to give very practical scenarios, you know, kids making weird noises or kids going, yeah, whatever. Like we, we wanted very practical scenarios that everyone would relate to. And then what you can do right that second. This, and this section does it so well because you've said, you know, here's this type of behavior, this type of kid yeah. and behavior that's taking place. And here's some ideas and suggestions about what to do in the moment, down the road and, yeah. you know, following up type thing. And, and I just, I love that I, because that you're so right. Having some practical advice about that because so often, I mean, that's, that's what's missing is this that idea of, okay, this is what just happened. What do I do? You know, and, yeah. and unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and often developmental science is very, um, it can feel very just cerebral. And it's like, let's just distill it to, these are the insights behind it. And this is what you can do so that it can become um, practical, that you can understand this from a, a, a lens of, of, of doing, not just, um, oh, that's a nice theory. Yeah, I, I like that because the more uh, the more practical and the, the advice that you can give and such like that. And it's so it's, it's written. It's such a great, easy to understand. You know, this is not like, uh, you know, all right, first we're going to talk about the following theory and this, that, and the other, and <laughs> no. you're going to have to look up these words because we, no one knows what they mean. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and um, sorry, that's a little bit of bias. I've read some books where you can tell they're trying to coin all these phrases and it's like, stop, just tell me what, what you think I should do. And, well, thank uh, you. I appreciate that because Tamara and I actually worked very hard to make it that accessible. We really didn't want to use any languages, any language or words that were hurdles, anything that felt sort of esoteric. We just really wanted it to be um, real. And so I appreciate that you noticed that. <laughs> oh, very much so. It comes through loud and clear throughout the book. But especially the, the more practical you're getting, the, the, I mean, you just understand where you're going with what your thoughts are and your advice and such. And I love it. Uh, it you know, one of the things that uh, I want to talk about here is chapter 16 is now, you know, I want to I say how I wrote this in my question when I, when I sent you the questions, because I'm like, chap, chapter 16 is a set my brain on fire chapter. All right. That's, that's how it was coming out of my head. And, and. And it's, and it's because it's called shifting the negative identity of an individual child. And right away, the reader sees this statement, becoming the leader who helps children see who they can be. Can you explain this? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because this chapter seems to be the one that's resonating for so, I get also many emails and messages about this chapter. So it's kind of exciting. Children can get stuck in roles that prevent them from thriving. 
And so even if we have all the insights to what's behind the behavior, um, even if we have insights to be like, okay, this is why the kid's aggressive and this is what I can do. Sometimes kids get stuck seeing themselves that way. I'm the bad kid. I'm the lazy one. I'm not smart. I'm not whatever it is. I'm, I'm the bully. And who we think we are matters so much. Who we think we are. And so once students are attached to us, we have such an ability to lead them to see themselves differently. And what I often see is that people try and um, inspire kids to be different. They're like, you know, encourage them. You can do this. Like, um, or they'll bring in these awesome speakers to their schools, which are really inspiring. And it's not that having inspiring speakers isn't great. It's wonderful to have diverse, inspiring speakers in our classrooms or in our schools. But that's not what shifts a child. That might make the light bulb go off, it, it, but it doesn't keep the light bulb running. And it's like for me, for example, I've, I've sometimes, you know, I've gone to a talk and I was so excited and it was moving and inspiring. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to start jogging and eat really healthily. And then nine o'clock comes and I'm in bed eating chocolate and watching Netflix. You know, like it doesn't last, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes, it does. <laughs> and so we need to be more than inspired to change. We need to experience who we are differently. And so for me, this is not about encouraging children. This is not about inspiring children. This is about reframing and helping them experience who they are differently. And so this can look like different things. One of the things I do is I use a lot of reframing language. And so reframing is things when we help a child see their gifts in the midst of a perceived failure. So I'll give you a little story and this is, it can do parenting stories or school stories, but like it's, uh, it's the one that comes to mind right away is my daughter um, used to forget her lunch kit all the time in about grade two. And every day I'd remind her, okay, Madeline, don't forget your lunch kit. And she'd be like, I'm going to remember it. And every day she'd come home and say, oh, I forgot my lunch kit. And I'd say, how about putting a little note in your cubby? And I'd, I'd give to all sorts of, come up with all sorts of ideas. It didn't really make any difference. For some reason, at the end of the day, her brain was too full and remembering her lunch kit was a challenge. And then about a month went by, which she was remembering her lunch kit. A month comes by and she comes home and she says to me, mom, I, I forgot my lunch kit again. And I almost went back into nag mode. I almost was like, Madeline, are you serious again? Like, come on. And instead I stopped because I remembered how hard I was working on reframing so that my children could experience themselves differently. And I said, Mads, you must be so proud of yourself. You went for a whole month remembering your lunch kit. You're getting so responsible. And she was like, I know, I'm remembering all the time now. Nice. Now, it's the exact same situation. And this is what I do in our classrooms when I'm working with teachers, helping them see, is that when a child has a perceived failure, let's say I'm working with a child and they, um, we have a plan for them not to hit. And I'm in a kindergarten class and I see them before they hit somebody, their, their fists are shaking and they're holding their body tight, but they, it doesn't last and they hit someone. I could say, why are you still doing this? Are you kidding me? We've talked about this a million times. Or I could say, wow, you're getting there. I just saw you hold your fists for three seconds. I saw you not trying to, to hit. And I can see that you're going to get there. You were able to do it for three seconds. I, I, I can imagine that soon you're going to be there altogether. You must be really proud of yourself. You're getting there. So I'm noticing the seconds they stopped, not the failure when they weren't able to hold on to their impulse. Yeah. 
I'm growing their experience of self from what they're doing that they're doing well. That doesn't mean I don't address it if they hit. Of course I do. But what I'm saying to that child is I see your gifts in this moment where there's a perceived failure. Um, and I'm also helping them see their good intentions in that. I'll say something like, you have such a caring heart. I know this just bubbled up inside you and came out, but I see your caring heart as well. And so that the child's starting to experience themselves differently. And this, this can be um, ex helping a child to experience themselves instead of encouraging them to, to get there might be things like saying, oh, I need a, a great leader to bring this down to the office. Can you do it? Or I was looking for somebody who has got a really caring spirit and I was wondering if they could take care of our class pet this week. And then picking the child who doesn't typically have the caring spirit so that they get to experience what it feels like to care and that they see you seeing them. It's like you're being their, you're being their eyes for them. They're seeing themselves as caring through your eyes. Instead of saying, well, nobody, you don't get to care for that guinea pig until I see you being more responsible. I'm reversing the dance. I'm saying, I see you as caring and you look like the exact type of person I would, that our guinea pig needs this week. Can you take care of his needs? So that child gets to experience what it feels like from a visceral level. Like they're, it's, it's experiential. They're getting, I, I, and they're, so they get both the experience of it on top of seeing you see them that way. So it's a double effect, if that makes sense. And I do this oh. over and over and over in the classrooms. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Cause it's just, you know, you, so many times, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, a lot of times kids will go through the entire school day and the only time they've heard their name is when it's associated with no, don't do that. Stop doing that. And you know, all these <laughs> negative things. And I know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, Stephen. And the thing is, is that these kids who, who we often say, well, you know what, you get this reward if you, you can take care of it. If you show me all week, many of them don't have the developmental capacity to ever get there. So to all those rewards that we make only work for the kids who didn't need them. The kids that are already like that, if that makes sense. So the kids that can't get there because they can't hold on that long, they need to be placed into experiences, which is they can feel their success. They can feel their leadership or feel their caring from the inside out. Not said you're going to get to have those things. You get to be a leader when you show me your leadership skills. No, I'm going to make you a leader now so that you get ex to experience what it feels like to be a leader. And then you know that from the inside out, what that feels like. I love that. I, I just, it's just so important to find those things like that. And that's just such just, um, great advice, thoughts, suggestions, because, uh, you know, it's sometimes when we don't realize, we don't recognize that, um, you know, it's, it's taking, taking time to, to do those things, be that leader who, who uh, helps them recreate that image of themselves. That's so, so important because that, that may be the only time someone's ever taken that interest in trying to do that. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and otherwise we can really cement their identities as good and bad. And like, you just brought up something really important there, important there, Stephen, you said, that sometimes it's the only, the only time that's happened. And absolutely. For some children, they've had one teacher who saw them differently in their whole life. And they are different because of that. Like they had one person who saw them beyond their behavior. They have one person who helped them fall into themselves. And they are forever changed. It's amazing. It's good stuff. Oh my gosh, I love that chapter. It's cool to hear other people did too. That's, that's neat. <laughs>
The, uh, so uh, could you talk a little bit about something that's really cool that throughout the book, there's reference made to it because it's important. Um, could you tell everyone about the additional resource that comes with the book, the Inside Out Handbook? Yeah, absolutely. So the Inside Out Handbook is um, uh, just over 60 pages of um, hands-on activities for the classroom that, and it's put it, that help um, sort of bring the material to life. And so um, one section is on ways to release aggression and re release frustration and sort of lower aggression. And so there's lots of activities for K to, K to grade 12 um, um, that you can use. The next section, section is on um, activities to awaken caring and um, awaken um, feeling in our students. And the other is on connection. So how we can build connection, um, kind of more inclusive and connected learning communities. And so they're meant for people who've never facilitated anything like this before. All the lesson plans are there for every one of them, the music's there, if there's music involved, um, all the materials are listed and they're very simple, practical things we can do in our classroom to increase emotional health and really build some more human-centered classrooms and lower aggression and anxiety. I love it. It's, and, you know, as a teacher, you know, you, an administrator, you're always looking for those ideas about what to, what to do in this situation or what, and having something to go to and take a look and get, get those ideas from is, is so powerful and so, and much needed. So very, just kudos to you guys. It, it, you know, something that is, is, I get stuck on this world. Cool. This word, I have, I have a couple words in my vocabulary that, uh, you know, when I get excited, they, they tend to be most of my vocabulary, cool and awesome are two of them. And uh, um, so, here comes cool. So something that is so cool is that uh, you close the book with a section called special considerations. And in this, there is a segment called special considerations for teachers wanting to share insights with parents and parents wanting to share insights with teachers. <laughs> I, first of all, uh, but I love it because the, first of all, just adding special considerations at the end. I love it because the whole section is, is so powerful, but this, this just spoke to me because First, I started smirking when I read the title because I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been there. I'm thinking about one of the, as an administrator, one of the things that I'm trying to figure out how to, to solve because you wish you'd been there to say, do you really want to say this to the parent that way? <laughs> and could we rethink that? And, you know, the same thing with the parent to the teacher. Could we rethink this? And, you know, and, and there's times when I needed somebody to kick me underneath the table when I, my mouth <laughs> didn't listen to the brain and said something that it shouldn't have said during a parent meeting um, or a teacher meeting. So we've got, you know, nobody's innocent here. <laughs> and I, kind of us. Yeah. I love the section. So uh, can you just talk about it? Yeah. So teachers and parents used to be on the same side. Many years ago, we, we, we saw ourselves as like co-raising, co-growing the child. And over the years that there's been a, strong, a bigger divide, we're often, teachers feel very judged by parents as if they're not doing um, a, you know, a good job. And parents can feel very judged by the behaviors of their children as if it's, um, teachers think it's their fault that their children are that way. And so sometimes, um, we see this division and we need to come back together as a village. We need to come back together as, as a community that, that sees that we are doing this together because it's in the best interest of the child if we're a team. And therefore, we need to approach one another 
with the respect that um, and see ourselves as on the same side, if that makes sense. And so um, being, being, you know, very conscious and, and of, of how we speak to families and how we invite them into relationship as well as part of our schools and how as parents, how we, how we approach the teachers so that we're, we're not putting them on the defense, but we're honoring the extraordinary work that teachers are doing. So this section there is about building us, bringing back that village and looking at how can we see ourselves as on the same side and how can we use language that um, doesn't put each other's defenses up, but honors this important, um, this important connection that we actually have that maybe we forgot we have, that we're raising this child together, that we're growing this child together. And so it, it, in, in that section, we, we you know, come up with ideas for how we speak to one another, how we, yeah. How, how we can be respectful and um, slow and mindful, I guess, in, in, in these relationships that we build, because it's, it's, it's what will make the child, if, if we speak negatively about a teacher as a parent at home, that child is going to have less opportunity to attach to that teacher. And if as a teacher, we're putting down home or vice versa, that parent doesn't feel then therefore welcome with their ideas, and they know that child differently than we do. So if we step back and look at ourselves as a team, we have more room for growth. I love that. And it, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of this world, uh, they, they've, they've taught themselves and not, I'm not, I'm not letting anybody off the hook here. It's not, this is not a, just a parent thing. This is not just a teacher thing. It's just, just an administrator thing. They've taught themselves that the right way to do this is to, you just need to tell them what to do. <laughs> It's like good luck with that. <laughs> it's like no, no, please stop. And yeah, yeah, so been in those meetings, and I just love that section. That whole special consideration section. It's just, you hit a couple of little, uh, not, not not really little um, areas that really need to be addressed. And I love that. And that one just really spoke loudly to me. Uh, yeah, Hannah. Before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you uh, or learn more, where would you send them? I say that probably the easiest way to go find me is to go to hannahbeach.ca um, and because on my website, you can immediately get to my newsletter, which is where I'm really active with people from all over the world with community change makers. Um, I send out a blog once a month um, on that, as well as um, workshops, talks, um, etc., as well as reclaimingourstudents.com. And I don't know if you know this, but we just launched our book as a live 12 video sessions. On Ooh, nice. Yeah. So we just launched our book in as an online digital resource so that teachers could say, for example, you were like, oh, I love the, the section on shifting the identity of an individual child. You can just watch that video now. It's, an, it's 75 minutes. And Tamara and I are live and engage, and, and engage the educators in that. So um, I guess that those two places, hannahbeach.ca and reclaimingourstudents.com, both lead to all my social media as well as my newsletter. And yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll put those, all that information in the show notes so that they'll be able to link to it and, and uh, go find you, which would be excellent. And uh, I have last two questions that I like to ask my guests, which uh, um, just go like this. So the first one is, how do you keep going when you, when you got so much going on that you want to quit? I saw you sent me this question and I was thinking about that. I was thinking, what do I do? 
what do I do? I think there's two things that I do. One, have you ever had a big dinner party? And at the end of the dinner party, the kitchen is like an absolute disaster and the table's covered and the counters are covered. There's no, not even a single spot you can put a plate down. Know the feeling. <laughs> and you look at it and you're thinking, I'm not sure where I'm going to start right now. Yes. <laughs> and I just pick up one glass. I just tell myself, just pick up one glass. And I, it's the same when I was writing my book or when I have so much overwhelm in front of me. I don't think... I need to finish this book. I think I need to finish this paragraph. This paragraph needs to be finished. And I, I try to bring it down to small bits because it's, it's too overwhelming when we look at change and everything that has to happen. I pull back and I think, what is this one little thing that, what is one thing I can do in this moment? Just one thing. And that usually has a ripple effect um, for, the rest of, for the rest of it. And other than that, I try and sort of uh, take care of myself every day. So little things like I listen to music when I do the dishes. You might think that's a funny answer to this, but I wanted to be very honest and authentic and not kind of come up with some, I don't know, slick answer. But I think, I think um, I do things that take care of my emotional health and music for me. I like to dance when I do the dishes and put on music and it's, it's a little bit of a release. And so when I feel like my world is building up to the point that I can't cope, I think, Oh my goodness, what do I do? We need to do today. Even if it's for 10 minutes, is it have a bath or go for a walk or put on a piece of music? I, I, I look at it in small bits. It's not huge things. It's pick up one glass and start and take 10 minutes to do something for myself. That's going to give me an out breath right now. Thank you. That's Awesome advice, and I love love that. And as a feller music feller, a fellow music person <laughs> who likes to have music playing while he's trying to take care of uh, whatever that major task is, I, I really like that. So, okay. good stuff. So, the last question goes like this: Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? I absolutely do, and. I, um, this teacher's name is Tammy Dowler Coltman, and she was my grade 11 drama teacher. And she had a sign above her door that said, please leave your ego at the door. And I, nice. I, I thought this is amazing in grade 11. And it was the first time as a young person that I felt what it was like to have feelings alive in a classroom. She created this space, such an authentic, authentic space where we could actually be ourselves, where you didn't have to be cool. You didn't have to pretend to know the answer. You didn't have, I was horrible at drama. I couldn't act and I, I improv scared me so much. So I was very nervous and she just made it feel like nothing mattered, that all that mattered was that we were real. And it sounds like it might be just something kind of silly, but it actually had a profound effect. It was a moment I became an educator, I think, in that classroom. I saw what it took when she made space for me. She invited me, not just a student, but Hannah, to open up in that room. And I saw the power of what that looked like all together. I discovered so many things about myself. And it, cha it, changed, um, it changed who I was as a teenager. But it also made, it made me realize the power that one educator can have in a person's life. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, you know, Hannah, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, talking with me today, reclaiming our students why children are more anxious, aggressive, and shut down than ever. And what we can do about it is a powerful book. It's practical. And all educators and parents should read. Wishing you the very best in all you do. 
Thank you so much, Stephen, and thanks for having me. I was really enjoyed chatting with you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.